Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Drew Neiser. He's the founder of Renegade and CMO Huddles, and most recently, the author of Renegade Marketing. 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands. Drew and I have done a podcast before, and I'll link to that in the show notes. So I'm excited to have him back and talk about his new book. We spend a lot of time talking about what makes B2B marketing great and great marketers at B2B marketing. We talk about his acronym CATS. We talk about how to stay distinctive, how to sell through service, and much, much more. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Andrew and I are going into business together, at least in pilot. We'll see how this works. He's got the CMO huddles concept for B2B CMOs, and we're going to beta test for B2C CMOs. So if you're a B2C CMO listening to this, get in touch with me so we can get you into, into this beta. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Drew Neiser. Drew, welcome to the show. Hey, Alan, it's wonderful to be here. You know, the last time we recorded something together was episode 50 of Renegade Thinkers Unite. That was a long time ago. That was. What are you up to these days? You're in the 200s, right? 260. We just came out last Friday. Nice. Yeah, that was a really long time ago. 
That was. It's nice to have you on the show. Um, I, we've got a lot to talk about, your latest book. But before we get into the business talk, you're a big gin drinker from what I remember. And uh, I think your go-to drink when we were hanging out was a gin martini. Was that right? It is true. And it's gotten worse in that I actually have a live marketing show called now called Renegade Marketers Live, where every other week we do gin tastings in the middle of this marketing show. So yeah, um, <laughs> I drink gin for a living. So thank you. Yeah. And by the way, I work for gin too. I mean, the gin companies uh, send us this gin for tasting. So it's pretty cool. I need to get on your sponsor list. <laughs> well, any favorite gin drink for non-martini drinkers? Yeah. You know, it's funny. My wife isn't really a big fan of gin, but a lot of people haven't heard of these old Tom gins. They're barrel aged. They look more like bourbon than gin. And there's a, a brand called Bar Hill, and they actually put a touch of honey in their gin. And for my wife, I make this old Tom sort of mint drink where I pummel and muddle the mint and then let that sit there for a while. And then she, she loves it. So it's a really good drink and it tastes a little bit more like bourbon than, uh, than gin. I'm on board for that. I'm a bourbon drinker myself. Try that, uh, Bar Hill. Uh, it's amazing. I will. Well, let's talk business. Congrats on your latest book, Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands. Why'd you write this book? This is not your first rodeo. <laughs> no, you know, I, I just sort of, it's, it was a choice between beating my head against the wall and writing another book. No, the thing that, that I didn't start out to write a book, I started out to solve a problem. And the problem that I saw about four years ago, we saw at Renegade was that B2B marketing had gotten ridiculously complicated. And it was unclear to us that it had gotten more effective. So we started doing the research with our own. We fielded a bunch of research, ended up interviewing 233. That was quantitative over two-year period. And then we also continued to do these interviews. And what came out was that there was a way to simplify it. We created this process. We tested it on our clients. And then the pandemic came along and I was about done with the book and I wasn't sure it was going to work. So I took a streamed down version of the book, 15,000 words, and posted it on our website right as the pandemic began as a saying, I don't know what's going to happen. This may work. This may not. And it ended up being a killer piece of content for us and also uh, gave me another year plus to keep interviewing, to keep refining it. And so finally, after four years, I think we've sort of nailed how to really simplify B2B. I love it. And the notion of taking that much time to the, the, you know, the research that you did, the, the streamlining, the writing, you know, crafting the message before you go to the big format of a book. Any tips on writing a book if I ever wanted to do that? Besides don't do it, I guess. So it's funny because I, I actually started by with the outline of the 12 steps and that was sort of a mental thing. But I also had a framework, which was courageous, artful, thoughtful, and scientific, the CATS framework. And I had that that came out of the first book. But if, if the question is how to write a book, I have to do a shout out to a friend who suggested this is write the outline and then just film yourself talking about each of the chapters and, and transcribe it. And you'll sort of see what you need and what you don't. It's a great way to get started. I didn't take that approach, <laughs> but I did have the outline and the methodology that we were talking about in the book and then had a chance to 
talk about it with CMOs through the interviews and kept finding cases that sort of reinforced each of the 12 steps and each of the four traits. So look, it's not hard to write a book. It's hard to write a book that people want to read and that is worth reading. And, you know, it's easy actually to, to write a book. You know, mine's 45,000 words. I don't know, write 500 words a day and you're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, easier said than done. You know, there's a lot of books on marketing. Uh, what in your mind makes this, this one different? I hope it's different. And, you know, we all, a part of it is the intention, which is this try to radically simplify. Secondly, is that it, this CATS framework, which gives you sort of an overview of what it's going to take for you to be a successful marketer, as in courageous, artful, thoughtful, and scientific. And then it's just the stories. And I just kept finding great stories, both from the interviews and from my career, and really tried to write a book that I would want to read because, you know, I'm, I'm either reading history or fiction. And so for me to read a business book, it's got to be really well written and have a lot of good stories. And it's funny, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. They like to read the like the two page versions of the book. I can't do that because I miss the stories. That's what I remember. And I think that's what we all remember. And I'm not, this isn't a pitch for storytelling. This is just the way we think and remember. So if I can tell you about the time we were nervous as heck by running a tough book over by a Hummer and you feel like you were there, you're not going to forget that story. And you're going to, oh yeah, that, that, you're going to remember that. Part of it is the framework. Part of it is the methodology. And, and I hope some of it's the writing. I love the framework of just radically simplification, radically simplifying the cats framework from the first book that you poured over is phenomenal too. And I just make sure everyone knows what that acronym stands for. It's courageous, artful, thoughtful, and strategic, correct? Well, scientific actually. And I've added to it in, so that's what came out of the first book and, but I added to it. And so Part one of the book is uh, Courageous Strategy. Part two of the book is Artful Ideation. Part three of the book is Thoughtful Execution. And part four is Scientific Method. So this framework really was helpful to me and to even expand upon it. So, you know, think about it. You've got strategy, you've got ideation, you've got execution, and you've got measurement. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It sounds simple. And the book, the book is, is a good read and it does get into the how um, more so than other books that I've read. Don't uh, tell anybody that I paid you to say that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I did. I know. I mean, we really did want to, I wanted people to be able to sort of self-service this idea. And so if we say as part of artful ideation that, or, you know, that you ought to really welcome we, and that includes a employee survey. We put the employee survey in the book. I know it's amazing. Like it is a, it's a very practical book. And, you know, I've all, I did like the cats from the first book, the acronym and the thought process and the ba backgrounds on the people that you interviewed along the way. And this one put a lot more teeth to that acronym in my opinion. So like, okay, how do, I, how do I think about being courageous or thoughtful ideation? And how do I bring experimentation into my business and all of those things? So 
you'll owe me a little bit more later. We'll talk about my uh, Yeah, I promise. <laughs> it's, it's good. I'm slipping it under the table via uh, Zencaster right now. Yeah, exactly. But you, what you're observing, so the CATS framework came out after I wrote the first book. I didn't have it in my mind, but people kept saying, okay, we can't talk about 64 elements in your first book. Narrow it down, narrow it down. Talk about, you know, give me four characteristics of successful marketers. And that's what came out of it. But I, you know, you're, you're right in that the expanding on that and putting courage as the basis for strategy and putting artfulness as the basis for ideation really for me became so much easier again to create this uh, simplified construct. Let's tackle a few topics that marketers are, you know, always wrestling with. One age-old question is, why do new products or marketing initiatives fail? Here's a funny thing. So in the research that I mentioned early on of the 233 folks that we surveyed in 2019 and 2020, 90% of them agreed that marketing had gotten ridiculously complicated in the last 12 months. Okay, so we started to break that down. And one of the things that we asked was, how important is it to you to involve employees in new campaigns and things like that? And it was like overwhelming, 70, 80% said, very important. And then we said, so how long do you give to that? And more than 60% said less than a month. And so what that told me was that what they think of as employee education is just a coat of paint on an old barn. They are not doing anything that is really meaningful. Like if you launch a new campaign, particularly a new brand, you better be bringing some meat behind it, like there's a new service or a new product or something. And if you're doing that, then you got to retrain your employees, right? And you know, we can we can talk about the Aetna example. I think uh, you and I mentioned talked about before, but this is where they go wrong: is they think, oh, we can push this thing, this new brand uh, or this new feature or this new product out to market, and we don't need to educate our employees on the implications and. They call a call center. They don't know what's going on. They call a salesperson. They don't really have, they just have a superficial knowledge. And that's the problem with most marketing is that it is in fact superficial. And so I think the, uh, the issue is that it starts with a strategy that isn't substantive. And if you're not substantive there, then you're not going to have a substantive re-education of your employees about the program. It's so true. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to do something new and different and you're only spending less than a month with your employee base, like, is it really that good? Like, you know, it makes a lot of sense to put employees first, um, especially in the B2B context. A lot of times those employees are your frontline versions of your brand. Oh my God, they are the brand in a lot of cases. I mean, if you're, if you're Deloitte or a consulting firm, they are the brand. And then the sort of the second part of this thing that I think is so important that sort of gets missed is they rush it out to prospects and they haven't really gotten a customer buy-in. And, you know, was this on the roadmap or not? Are customers already endorsing it? Do they feel like they were on the inside because they're part of a community that's supporting the brand? Or did you just sort of throw it out there? And again, missed opportunity because they just have their eye on the prospect. Oh, we're going to get new business out of this, net new logos. And as a result, if you don't have your employees behind it and you don't have your customers behind it, good luck. Yeah, I, I'm having the, the like flashbacks of, of calling a call center and talking about something I got in the mail and they go, oh, that's just something marketing put together. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, just marketing. It's just uh, don't don't listen to that. Yeah, don't don't worry about that. That's not business. It's just that's just the pretty pictures they put out this week. <laughs> well, you know, there's one thing about starting or, or or trying to transform from the inside out. But what does your research say about how marketers are doing to make their marketing stand out in the marketplace itself? This was really interesting. In the same survey that I mentioned earlier, we asked them, how many of you consider your brand, the brand that you are selling to the marketplace, distinct um, from the competition? And 60% said, yeah, we think it's, it's pretty distinct. But then you ask them, is your marketing distinct? And only 40% said yes. And that to us is a pretty big gap. I mean, that's a 20-point gap. But more importantly, if less than half are saying that their marketing is distinct, you sort of scratch your head because it's always been pretty much the job of the marketer to differentiate the brand. And so they must either are not looking at that as a metric that matters to them, or they don't know how to do it, or something's wrong because that's pretty fundamental. Begs the question, like, how can you be distinctive overall if you don't have distinctive marketing like come on yeah exactly and look there are some brands that are are we'll call them product led where there's so much that's sort of different about the product that the marketing is less distinctive and probably even less important i mean if you just think about all these products that sort of grew on a freemium basis you know, they were kind of distinct from a marketing standpoint, but they were distinct because they got free trial. And, and I think that's one of those things that you really have to take in, into effect. But what I talk a lot about in the book is making things real. And if you are going to transform your brand, it's, it starts from the inside out. It's getting your employees on board. It's teaching them something new that is, in fact, bringing out what is distinct about the brand or the company. I really like your focus on distinctiveness too, uh, versus the other word of differentiation. And to me, I, we cover a lot of brands on the show, but uh, many of them are consumer oriented in nature versus B2B, although we have some B2B folks come on too. There is kind of, I, I, once your brand has been out in the marketplace or your products have been out in the marketplace, naturally, the competitors start to copy you, you copy them. Next thing you know, everyone kind of feels a little bit the same from a feature functionality standpoint, but you can still be very distinctive despite the fact that you might have very similar products you know, and services. It's true. I, I mean, I, I let uh, marketers off the hook a little book, bit on the book. I start by talking about uniqueness and saying, Ikea, unique, all the way, all top to bottom. And if you're lucky to work for a company like Ikea, it's pretty marketing is, is easy. Most B2B brands are not as, you know, where unique is really hard to find, but distinctive should not be. And so, you know, that's why we focused on that. Again, we want to make it simple. You know, we don't want to make it impossible. <laughs> but, you know, let's look at it. And it was funny. I, in the book, I talk, Carla Pinheiro Sublet is now the CMO at IBM. She was at NI and she talked about how they took all the brands in her category. It was National Instruments before they rebranded to NI and they put them all on the wall and every single brand was blue. So that's a place to look. You know, I don't think you should only differentiate by color and I don't think you should pick a color just because you want it, but it is a way. And, and I talk about that a lot. Sometimes color 
I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned a case of a, of a brand that stood out because they were orange. I talked about copper because they were, so you can do it with, with color, but I hope there's more, something more substantive to it or a link from the color to an idea. That makes a lot of sense. And, and Carla actually has been on this show too. So like we talked about her brand relaunch, I guess, of NI before she ended up at IBM. And, and I know one of the things that they, beyond the color aspect, which was huge, you know, the look and feel of their marketing changed quite a bit at NI as well. Yeah, no, they really went almost, I won't, I won't call it fashion-y, but they went big images, beautiful images of people. Not what you would normally expect from an instruments company, you know, like, and started telling stories about the people that use their products, you know, making their users the heroes, if you will, too. Always a good idea. It's never about you. You know, one of the areas that I liked a lot about your book, I got my career started in services and services marketing. And so I love your chapter on sell through service. What can you tell listeners about the value of leading with service in general? The whole premise. And I've been thinking about this, by the way, for a long, long time. We used to call it marketing as service, but I had to change it to sell through service because it's alliterative and that's what all the chapters are. But this notion of marketing as service I've talked about for, for a long, long time. And it's this notion that marketing can actually add value to the world. It doesn't have to be sell, 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 message, message, message. And there's so many examples, both in the B2B and the B2C world of where marketing has genuine value that really helps the customer. And this became clear to me with a lot of the research that Brent Adamson did at Gartner. He talked about buying is broken, buying committees are broken. And what we need to do is we need to enable them and make it easier for them to buy, right? And so he talks a lot about the various ways to do that. And I, I quote him several times and Brent, by the way, was nice enough to write the forward to my book. So shout out to Brent. You're my hero. But there's a lot of good things in, in, in the research that they did that point to the fact that this works <laughs> and that if you make it easier for your customers to buy because you think ahead. And a great example of this, and he talks about this, I don't mention it in the book, but it is you've got a buying committee of 14 people. You have this crazy ass cycle of buying, buying, uh, a meeting, demos, meetings, demos. And then you're 11 weeks, uh, months into the, the sale and they say, oh, we just found out that we have a finance committee that has to review things um, for uh, purchases over a half a million. So, you know, it's back to the drawing board unless you, uh, they always ask that, oh, we already had that report prepared. And by the way, they would have already provided it six months ago to the lead a person in-house and said, here, here are the financials that your CFO are going to need. That's just smart marketing. And I think the difference between marketing today and marketing 10 years ago. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is that 10 years ago, marketers would just hand over a lead and say, sales, go do your thing. If sales failed, yeah, well, sales sucks. Today, that won't work. Marketing and sales are like hand and glove, and they're working with each other. And whatever stage there's a problem, there's a marketing as service, a sell through service solution. And so the marketer really has to spend a lot of time with the salespeople to watch that and see where the deals are slowing down and develop those programs. There's a phrase, and I can't remember, I'm stealing this from somebody. And right now I'm going to claim it as my own, but I know it's not for those that are listening. They used to use this phrase all the time called solve, don't sell. And it's this notion of to what you're talking about, which is provide value along the way. So it doesn't, one, it doesn't feel like you're constantly just selling them or messaging them to buy, but really helping solve a problem along the way. I like, like, I like marketing, particularly when marketing actually is helpful. And, you know, this is the thing that I think people will enjoy working in departments that are not pushing messages out there, but are creating things that actually make their customers' lives easier. And so a lot of the point of content to me, if you start with how do I help my customers, chances are you're going to have better content. And that can just sort of get you all the way, uh, also help you through the sales process. Well, let's move to measurement. That is the constant ever present challenge for marketers and marketing organizations. You talk about the need to radically simplify your metrics. What do you mean by that? There's a couple of things going on. One, and this isn't just me, if you talk to CEOs or boards of directors about CMOs and talk about their metrics presentations, they're rolling their eyes. Because they're talking, you're talking MQLs and clicks and site traffic, and none of that seems like business language that's gonna that's growth, right? So enlightened CMOs have already figured out that they have to talk in the language of growth, and and that's great. So let's talk about that. The problem is that that's only one aspect of the role. And so what the book prescribes, and this I learned later after I'd already sort of worked this out that, and, and by the way, I didn't work this out alone. I worked with a bunch of CMOs on this, is how do we radically simplify this? We've got to have better metrics for employees because, you know, as we already talked about, we can't go to market without employees on board. We've got to have better metrics for customers because NPS is insufficient. We've got to have better metrics for acquisition. So we have a real sense of, you know, looking forward as opposed to looking backward. And then lastly, and this is the thing that blows my mind, it's like less than 30% of B2B marketers have a brand health study in place. And I think back early in my career at package goods, you had brand health, every single brand, and it didn't even matter how big they were. I mean, I, and, and so you knew what your awareness were. You knew what your saliency was. You knew where you stood relative to your competitors. And now what a lot of CMOs do and rely on is this sort of faux metric that they can get, which is called share of voice, which is kind of an awkward measure of digital impressions. And, and that's fine. And, and I, in the book, I talk a lot about how you can get to some blended metrics for employees, customers, and prospects that will give you not just a sense of where you are, but sort of a health metric. 
And and I give you an example. I mean, employees right now, if you are, you know, it's a very competitive market. And it was two years ago before COVID, and now it's really competitive. So you've got to keep your employees and you have to attract new ones. Well, marketing has a profound role to play in that. And so that's why I'm encouraging CMOs in B2B particularly to have that metric, to own that metric. Even if HR is pushing out the communications, they should own some kind of an employee health metric and an employee satisfaction metric. From measurement, it leads right into uh, one of the last areas you talk about, which is this culture of experimentation. And I think we've, we've heard about this, I mean, from the trade presses and, and other things that are out there around, you know, having a more agile workforce, a more agile marketing approach or test and learn. How do you define what a culture of experimentation looks like? First of all, you can find, tell right away because you can look at, ask the marketer what percentage of your budget is for tests and new things. And if it's less than 5%, there's no culture of experimentation. If it's 20%, you know that these folks are, are on it. And so part one is just where you're putting budget. Part two is the recognition that that experiment could become your whole program. And I tell a story in the book about one CMO, uh, Carolyn Tian-Spalding at Optology, who had 20% of her budget in a test. And when COVID struck and suddenly events weren't possible, she could flip a switch and it went 80-20 the other way, which is, you know, what kind of, now we're not necessarily have to prepare for a pandemic, but that's, so that's part one of it is, is budgeting and having some smart things in there. Part two of it is working with your CFO to be clear about what are the metrics that you're going to measure these tests by so that you know you can expand. Because it's one thing to test. It's another thing to know that you can, if, if you do it and it works the way, you're going to get budget to uh, execute it. The culture of experimentation comes from a couple of things is that folks in marketing like to think are in marketing because there's a creative aspect to it. And you can really fuel that as long as you are willing to support and even celebrate failure. Because you don't experiment if you're afraid. And that goes all the way back to the first part of, you know, courageous strategy. Well, this is sort of the end of that, that, you know, if we're going to experiment, we have to be able to be courageous about the experiments that we take and the risks that we take along the way. That's so important. Thank you for underlying the culture aspect of experimentation, <laughs> because it's so true. You can have 20% of your budget in experimentation, but if everyone's running around worried that they're going to fail, are you really pushing the envelope on what you're experimenting for? You know, like may turn out to be more incremental in nature versus trying new things. And by the way, this is, uh, you know, I think I talked to Trish Muller about this. She did a whole thing at, at Home Depot where she was celebrating, where they would actually sort of, this was the big failure that was tried kind of thing, and you know, which was, which was hilarious. But I think that this test to triumph, which is the last chapter, you can't test to triumph if you don't have the right metrics in place. And this is why that, you know, you can have a culture of experimentation, but again, if the metrics are wrong then how do you know if the experiment worked? And so this is why you got to do that part first and really be clear as to what it is that you're trying to, to accomplish and, and make sure that, you know, that you're going to be measured based on that. And that, the, you know, as, as uh, CFOs like to use this term, 
dry powder, that there's dry powder to support the the experiment. Because there, there's nothing worse, by the way, if you do a test and it hits all the numbers and then the CFO says, oh, sorry, just kidding. We're not going to support it. It's like, what? So, the, And that could happen. So this is where you can get, uh, and I talk in the book, I love this is something that came, uh, Jeff Perkins does, and he's now the CEO, but when he was the CMO, he would have this, I think it was a day or a week where they'd have these contests for developing uh, new ideas. And they'd have these cross-functional teams in order to do it. What a great thing. It's just fun, right? You take a day and you're just going to think about new products and everybody in the organization is on a team and then they had prizes and so forth. That's when you know you're, you know, you, you brought everybody together and it's, it's really, and then they actually executed some of those ideas. I hope some of the listeners of this show uh, will pick up your book, Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands. By the time this airs, your book will be alive and out in the wilderness. I know you're just days from of launch right now. So uh, I know everything's a little hectic and I thank you for spending some time with me today. I am so grateful uh, for this chance to talk and uh, uh, it's been uh, it's been great. I mean, uh, you, uh, it's so fun to be interviewed by you. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. You're so kind. I'll pay you later too. So. Yeah, okay, good. Good. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit. We we like to get a, a number of questions out to everyone that comes on the show. I always love getting to know people even a little more, even, even though we know each other. We've known each other for years. I want to ask you one of my favorite questions to ask, which is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I am this one of these people who seems to win something that doesn't go the way I thought it was. It works out better. I didn't get into the college I was supposed to. Everybody in my family went to Yale. I got to go to Duke. It was the greatest thing in my life. First woman I asked to marry me, she declined. Man, did that work out really <laughs> well for, for me and by the way, for her, just to, for her. And then in business, I mean, there's been any number of crises and, and so forth. And I'll, I'll give you a most recent example. When the pandemic struck, and, and by the way, I'd been prepared because we'd gone through 9-11, we'd gone through 2008 when you know 70% of our business walked out the door. So I had now developed a mindset that crisis equals opportunity. And that's sort of become sort of the way I operate now. And so it's like something bad happens. Okay, now what? you know, reaction number one is how do I help the people that I know? And, and number two, what else could happen? And so when the pandemic struck and also the CMO club was sold, those two things happened. I went, oh, I got a lot of CMOs that I know that are going to be sort of flying and could really use to gather. Um, so we created CMO huddles uh, April 1st, 2020, just as a way to bring my friends together. I didn't know if it would help Renegade, I didn't, but I knew that it would help them. And so we started, uh, we baited in, in April and October 1st, 2020, um, we officially launched a subscription service for B2B CMOs. And, you know, knock on wood, we're uh, as, of, uh, as of the recording that we have 90 subscribers and it's, uh, it's a vibrant community and I'm, I'm really excited. And it all started because you know, you talk about selling through service. I just said, again, I don't know if our businesses are going to survive, but I know I can make a lot of friends and help a lot of people. So, and that's where we are. I love that CMO huddle idea so much. We're going to beta this for B2C marketers too, together. 
Yes, we are. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, you, you got to try, right? Yeah. Culture of experimentation, right? <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to definitely try this out. Um, I, you know, you can go to cmohuddles.com and learn um, the package offering, if you will, and the the format that you've got for B2B marketers. It'll be very similar to B2C marketers. But uh, is, is there anything you, you feel like we should highlight about what the huddle concept is and, and how it works? It really is about community and bringing together like-minded in the sense that these are folks that are extremely, remain curious and know that uh, as uh, as somebody famous said, oh, Ken Blanchard said, none of us is smart as all of us. And that's what we're after is it's a really hard job. I know that whether you're B2B or B2C, it's a really hard job to be a CMO and why go it alone? So, you know, we're bringing you together for huddles and small converse, small group conversations. We arrange one-on-ones. There's a lot of other ways that we're bringing the community together, Slack and all, and all of that. But ultimately it becomes how did this one CMO share an idea or a thought or an approach that helped another CMO? And as long as you keep coming to huddles and you get value, uh, we know we're helping. If you're listening to this and you're growth-minded CMO, B2B or B2C, we've got a huddle for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. So, well, uh, what advice would you give your younger self if you were starting this journey all over again? I didn't really start writing very seriously till probably 2008, where I committed to writing an article every single week. And that's when I really got into it. And I don't know, you know, one could say I wasn't mature enough to do it earlier, but I would tell my younger self, write earlier. And the reason to do that is it forces you to understand. And so you can't write an article on something without trying to wrap your mind around what it is that you heard. The second part about writing is you find, I got to find something to write about. <laughs> That's why I started interviewing CMOs. And you know now we're 10 years into this and it's like 460 CMOs I've interviewed. And that's a substantial, that's my 10,000 hours. You know, And so if you start that early, you're the Beatles in Hamburg. You get your 10,000 hours a little bit earlier than I did. I love that. And to your point, I mean, writing, when I'm thinking about whether it was in the consulting world or just teaching my team about something, like if you put pen to paper, you really figure out whether you know it as well as you think you do. Right? Yeah. And you really, you test your arguments. Yes. Yeah. No, it's very true. And it just, it is, it's hard at first. It takes longer and then you get a discipline. And I now, you know, I give myself a certain period of time to write an article and that's it. Is there a topic that you believe marketers need to be learning more about right now or, or you're trying to learn more about yourself? So the first chapter in my book is clear away the clutter. And I think the thing I want really marketers to be learning about is simplification in everything, in their jobs, in their lives, in their leadership style and their personal goals and in their approach to marketing. And because life is really complicated right now and you have to have mechanisms to try to simplify this because otherwise it's, you know, you're, you're overstimulated particularly in the CMO job where there's so many things, so many people coming at you. So you end up learning to politely say no. Um, You learn that the focus is your friend. You learn that if it's not on the plan, you can say, you know what? Great idea. It's not on the plan. We'll put it on next time. We'll put it in our bucket of test to triumph, but we're not going to do that now. 
but you can only get to simplification if you commit to it and understand it and have such a strong strategic foundation and buy-in from your executive team. You get those two things going, you can actually, it's a manageable job. You're Marie Kondoing every marketer's agenda. <laughs> That's the goal. Are there brands, companies, causes you follow you think other people should take notice of? We talked at the beginning of the show about gin brands, and I happen to have a, a, a couple, and, I, and they're illustrative. And in the book, I talk about little P and big P purpose, right? And I could talk about some cause marketing things, but I'd rather... So I'm looking at two bottles of gin right now. One is this Drum Shambo Gunpowder Irish Gin, and it comes with a little story packet uh, attached to the you know, uh, neck hanger. And the story is unbelievable about the founder, this guy, PJ Ridley, and how he found this tea in India and, and it's gunpowder-like and all, and there's a jackalope. It's just a great, great story. And what I also admire is there's layers to the story. And this is what you know booze marketers are particularly good at, maybe packaged good. There's a story in the first, it's like, oh, there's a jackalope. Oh, no, there's just a bottle and it's distinctive, right? And I've got another brand I'm looking at, Amos Dry Gin. Couldn't be more different, but in it looks more like something that you would find where you would be getting a hand cream from because it looks like, uh, and it's very different, but the story when you find out, and we in both cases, I've talked to the distiller and they come from these places. One comes from this place of adventure. This other one came from, what can I do with botanicals? <laughs> and this- California lifestyle, right? One's this Irish crazy guy and one's this very California into the, but they're both, the stories become more and more and more interesting, but there's a high level one and then you can dig deep. And again, this sort of simplification of the brand, I think is so helpful. And then, yeah, look, I know B2B, it's complicated. There are a lot of layers to the story you want to tell, but do you have a high layer, level layer? And we talk about a, that in the book. You know, If you can describe your brand in eight words or less, you got a chance. I love it. I've got to check out these gin brands you keep mentioning too. So um, we'll try to link to, to them for other listeners that may be interested. They'll be happy about that. Last question for you. What do you feel like is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? I think the threat is marketing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the marketing mindset, and I, and this is the thing that just really scares me about it, is the technology has advanced tremendously. And you could be a B2B CMO and just spend 100% of your energy refining what is called a demand generation engine, building a tech stack with 35 things, and your brand could have no values, your brand could have no soul, it could have no connection, and you're just pushing messages out there. So to me, the biggest threat to marketing is marketing, as opposed to this mindset of service and really sort of starting, taking a step back and saying, why are we in business? That's a hugely important question. And if you, to your point, getting stuck in the minutia of producing the machine, <laughs> you're not really doing marketing. I mean, you're doing the mechanics of it, but you're not, you're not doing marketing. I would call that marketing, but you're really not doing what marketing is capable of. You're not transforming an organization. You're not building an enduring brand. You're not creating 
a company that employs and customers, you know, employees feel really proprietarily attached to it and customers want to gather in a community. There's your thing. If your marketing is building community, you know you're doing marketing well. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 